2: no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
3: The average body temperature is 98.6. Sure, your personal average might be a little higher, it might be a little lower. But if you're running a fever, that number goes up. And it only takes a few degrees to indicate that something out of the ordinary is happening in your body. Well, our planet is running a fever. In the last century, the average global temperature has risen a couple of degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, a couple of degrees. That might be just a low-grade fever for a human. But it takes a lot of heat to warm a planet even one degree. And what about that heat?
0: I find it ironic and just fascinating that we have been talking about global warming for decades and not talking about heat. And it's the number one killer.
3: It's all a matter of degrees, and degrees matter. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, the world is getting warmer. We're losing snow cover and sea ice as a result. But that seemingly small rise in average temperatures has led to other dramatic consequences. Talk of global warming may soon include the terms heatwave lucifer, ocean heat blob, derecho and fungal pathogen as we explore the question what's a few degrees
3: here's a fascinating fact i learned about crocodiles now bear with me because this really is on topic if you want a male crocodile baby Well, just raise the temperature of incubation of the eggs slightly. Scientists have learned that it's the temperature of the nest, that pile of sand and dirt, not the chromosomes, that determine sex. It's called temperature-dependent sex determination, and by the way, it also goes for some turtles. But it's the sensitivity to very slight differences that's so impressive to me. Crocodile eggs that are 91 degrees Fahrenheit produce mostly males, while 86 degrees produce mostly females. The sex of crocodiles all comes down to a few degrees of temperature difference. Well, I've been thinking about those crocodile eggs as we put together this episode about our warming planet. And yeah, I'm concerned about how a rise in average global temperature will affect crocodiles, but we're all feeling the consequences of heat. We head now to the Louisiana Gulf Coast in a dire reality setting in
5: days after Hurricane Laura's deadly strike. No power or water for thousands amid sweltering southern heat.
0: After Hurricane Laura in Lake Charles, Louisiana and in the area there, a heat wave came after the hurricane. And so there were 400,000 people without power in the dead of summer. And it was, with humidity, felt like 109 degrees. But what if those residents of Louisiana
4: could prepare for the heat wave the way that they did for hurricanes? Kathy Boffman-McLeod has a proposal that is meant to be an attention grabber. Let's start naming heat waves in the same way we do hurricanes.
3: She's the director and senior vice president of the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center at the Atlantic Council and part of a new international coalition dealing with
0: heat. The Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance is a a collaboration of 30 plus organizations and individuals dedicated to tackling extreme heat for vulnerable people around the world.
3: She says that heat waves are deadly in part because they're silent, arriving without the furious winds and pounding rain of hurricanes.
0: We have to create the awareness of how dangerous this risk is. And naming and ranking heat waves is a great way to do that.
4: I was surprised to see recently that NOAA,
0: the National Oceanic Atmospheric
4: Administration, put out a list of the 10 or so top weather-related causes of death. And hurricane-related deaths were at the
0: bottom. I didn't expect that. And at the top were heat waves. That's right. Uh, heat-related deaths are more than hurricanes and floods combined. When a heat wave comes, your body begins to uh, react and you feel muscle cramps and nausea and fatigue, and your organs ultimately shut down. They have to work harder, particularly your heart uh, and lungs. They have to work harder to uh, support your body, and um, they, they stop. But one of the biggest challenges about these heat waves is that heat-related illness is not recorded as such. And so if you show up at the emergency room with heat stroke, they will take down your illness as a kidney failure or a heart issue. And part of what the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance wants to do is improve that data collection. Okay, so how would this naming system work if we were to name heat waves? And would the heat waves also be ranked the way that hurricanes are ranked. Absolutely, so the tropical storms and hurricanes are a great example and a great place for us to start. I think the key thing is ranking the heat waves and helping to better define heat waves for certain places. And one of the things that's different about naming a tropical storm versus naming a heat wave is the tropical storm is about a wind speed. It is or it is not you know, uh, 45 or 50 miles per hour that triggers the, the hurricane naming. But with the, with the heat wave, it's about the human body. You know, how vulnerable are you? And do you have underlying conditions? What's the humidity? What's the elevation? And so lots of factors. But when you talk about naming the heat wave, um, the idea is that yes, we rank them, but we also create a culture of preparedness and prevention around heat waves because you have this big splash of it has a name, it has a hashtag, the media has it, and uh, it becomes something you're aware of and it changes the way you behave. And that's the ultimate thing, we wanna save lives. What kind of names would you use? Can you give us an example? Well, I think we want to be sure to avoid confusion. And because, as in my example with Hurricane Laura, we wouldn't want to have a heatwave Laura and a Hurricane Laura at the same time. And so what is the best way to create the the goal we want, which is awareness? But I'm um, kind of loving heatwave Lucifer as uh, the first one. So, would all the, the names of heat waves have to be some variation of, of hell or Hades? <laughs> uh, well, it's a good place to start, but I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of science and a lot of work to be done to determine the best way. There's another phenomenon,
4: Kathy, and I suppose it's related that not only are we having more severe heat waves, but the average
0: temperature around the world is also rising. That's right. And you know, when we think about this, heat is a stress and a shock. So what you're saying is heat as a stress continues, and that's absolutely true. And then heat waves as a shock are also growing. So let's say that um, heat wave Lucifer is, is on the way,
4: that announcement would go out, perhaps people would get an email about it, they'd hear about it on the news. And then what would happen? How would people prepare for something like that? Or how could we help people if they didn't have air conditioned homes to retreat
0: to? A heat wave is coming and you get a text and it says that um, heat wave Lucifer is coming in the next 24 hours and it's expected to be category two. It should last two or three days. And this is what a category two means. It means that your elderly relatives um, and children need to be checked on and lots of water, uh, want to stay hydrated, and you can't work outside or play outside for those two days. People with respiratory issues uh, need to stay inside. And the list goes on for what people can do to protect themselves. And the beauty of the name, it gets a hashtag and the press is uh, splashing it all over the place and you begin to build that culture over years of you know what a category two heat wave means it means you got to check on your grandmother and it means you've got to stay inside and not go exercising and things like that so we just begin to educate ourselves and in the process you know save lives. Kathy Boffman McLeod thank you so much for talking to us today. You're welcome thank you very much.
3: Kathy Boffman-McLeod is Director and Senior Vice President of the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center at the Atlantic Council. And, uh, you know, Molly, I think that's really an interesting idea. You could name the heat waves after, I don't know, a difficult cousin.
4: <laughs> well, the average global temperature since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution has increased by one degree Celsius or two degrees Fahrenheit, as we've said. But why should a couple of degrees matter? Well, one reason, as we've heard, it makes deadly heat events deadlier.
3: And that's because boosting the planet's average temperature by just a a degree or two, that's not a trivial undertaking. It takes a really vast amount of energy to warm the land, the atmosphere, and especially the oceans.
6: So a heat blob is a warm period of time in the oceans where the temperatures are warmer than what they naturally are. I'm Professor Pitt Moore. I'm a marine ecologist from Newcastle University in England. In
4: 2016, a massive heat blob off the coast of North America made news after persisting for three years after it was first detected. Dr Moore says that these anomalous oceanic heat events are becoming more frequent.
6: Some of the largest um, marine heat blobs have been about five degrees above normal. If we think about the the heat blob the the blob um, the, that was off the northeast Pacific is that was about two and a half degrees warmer than normal which doesn't sound much but it can have quite devastating impacts
3: and how big is a blob this is not something that uh, you know I could I could swim across in, in a few minutes
6: so they can be quite small probably maybe hundreds of kilometers wide or they can maybe be thousand kilometers wide the blob was the marine heat wave that occurred between 2014 and 2016 on the northeast Pacific coast. Its impacts were felt from the Gulf of Alaska down to um, Baja, Mexico. So we're seeing impacts and the influence of that heat blob over quite vast areas. So Pip,
3: uh, this is just a question of terminology. I've been calling these enhanced or these areas of enhanced temperature heat blobs, but that's not what you call them as a scientist involved in this.
6: No, I mean, I guess we would more commonly call them marine heat waves. Um, and, and and I like to think that that is something that people understand as well, because they're used to hearing about heat waves when they're on land, and they're finding it a bit warm during the summertime. So we call them marine heat waves. Um, I think heat blob works. And certainly the largest and longest event was called the blob.
3: How far down does the, you know, this heat enhancement go? Is it just a surface effect or is it going deep into the ocean?
6: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, most of the way that we determine whether or not we're having these marine heat wave events is by the satellite record, and that measures sea surface temperature. So we're actually generally seeing patterns of increased these periods of anomalous warming at the surface of the oceans. But again, in this Northeast Pacific example, is that actually they found off British Columbia evidence of this heat wave at 140 metres below sea level a year after the initial um, heat wave on the surface of the ocean. And that's all to do with the way that the waters mix and how temperature moves. But they can be found in deeper waters as well, yes.
3: I wanted to ask one more question, just in terms of the... Blobs themselves. Are you considering naming these heat waves the way they do hurricanes? Uh, very, much so. So?
6: very much so. Very much. I mean, in fact, that we published the other year, very much advocating that because um, up until this point in time, you've had things like the Blob and Blob Two and the Western Australian Marine Heat Wave and the Mediterranean Heat Wave of Two Thousand and Three, and and actually, what we wanted to do is come up with a category scheme that was. A, absolutely analogous to hurricanes that, that got across um, the sort of severity or the, the physical nature of that extreme event and therefore likely the impacts it would have on nature. One of the most recent studies about the blob in the Pacific includes something important called formal attribution. What What is that? Attribution studies are really interesting. So what people are trying to do there is they're trying to create a link between the events that we're seeing and anthropogenic climate change. And the way that they do that, and and they did that in this study, is that they looked at the severity, the length um, and the intensity of the heat waves today. And they looked to see if they could have had the same frequency, duration and intensity of marine heat waves based on pre-industrial temperature records that we have. And what they were able to show is that marine heat waves today are 20 times more intense than they could have been without anthropogenic forcing. So it provides a clear link between the, the human signature on climate change and these increased intensity and frequency of marine heat waves.
3: So what happens to organisms that live in the ocean? I mean, how does this affect them? Warm water,
6: as a, as a swimmer, an occasional swimmer, doesn't sound so bad to me. Doesn't sound so bad to me either. I'm definitely a warm-blooded a water person. But um, the impacts are wide-ranging. You know, again, if we use this northeast-Pacific example, is that you saw um, impacts that ranged from plankton, so these tiny organisms that live in the sea that form the the basis of marine food webs, right up to to birds and seals and even the great whales and of course that also has impacts on human society because we've got um, many people make their livelihoods as as, as fishers um, who, who found that catches of crustaceans or scallops or oysters um, altered as a function of this and the really interesting thing for a lot of these sort of more charismatic species such as seals and, and and seabirds is it wasn't really the direct effect of the temperature warming that meant that they had higher mortality rates or or lower reproduction success it was that their food was of not of the quality that allowed them to to put on weight and su- survive so it was this indirect effect on the sort of lower trophic levels that amplified up to the whales and the birds so this is affecting the life at the top of
3: the food chain simply because they they can't get the food they need if food is of lower quality can they possibly i mean you know i'm thinking of i don't know salmon right they go out in the ocean they swim around for a year before they come back and they're eating all the time
6: can't they just swim to higher latitude and avoid the problem I mean, some species will shift their distributional range, but, of course, these aren't sentient beings. They don't make decisions going, oh, it's a an out-of-the-ordinary heat period. If I swim to the north, I'm going to find the food that I usually find. Um, they, they're responding to cues that, have you know, um, evolution has meant that they're successful enough and, and, and they follow those cues. So they can't respond quickly enough to these changes. So that's part of the problem as well is that if you've got, warming over decades or hundreds of years, there's time for biology and ecology to keep up. But if you've got a rapid change in temperature, is that actually it gives very little time for the natural system to respond.
3: So, Pip, it sounds like, okay, their environment is changing on a timescale that is so short, the usual evolutionary selection that would produce critters that could handle that is too slow. So, you know, what's kind of the worst case scenario here? I mean, how
6: bad can this effect be? I mean, like in anything, there's winners and losers. And and some species respond in positive ways, some in negative ways. But I guess if we're looking at a fixed location, is that you're going to see damaging effects. And we know that this has impacts on a whole range of species. But we're a very anthropocentric um, race, really, is is that what we're more concerned is how does that impact humans? So, you know, the scale of these things is, yes, it affects the lowest in the food web, but actually also the ultimate top predator humans.
3: I'm just sort of curious, you know, there's a lot of fishing that's done off the coast of Canada, the east coast of Canada, by both the Canadians and the Americans. And it would sound like, uh, you know, when it comes to convincing people that global climate change is not just an academic thing but it's a very you know it's something with very practical consequences sounds like you might soon have lobstermen and fishermen on the side of let's do something about the problem
6: Absolutely. And I think as scientists, we're starting to see that already. We often find that fishermen can be a bit sceptical about scientists, but actually some of them are incredibly knowledgeable. They have a huge passion for the system that they work in and they've worked in it for, for decades. And so many of them are actually agreeing with the observations that scientists are seeing. Pippa Moore, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
4: No worries. Pippa Moore is a marine ecologist at Newcastle University in the UK.
3: Up next, storm soakers in the Midwest and a farmer reflects on seasonal changes.
4: Then later in the show, Can our 98.6 body temperature continue to fight off pathogens that are adapting to warmer temperatures? Good times. It's what's a few degrees on Big Picture Science.
7: It is Ryan here
3: and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? We're talking about the difference a couple of degrees makes. And no, that's not about your chances for tenure or a salary boost. We're referring, of course, to a rise in average global temperatures. But in Earth's long history, temperatures have occasionally swung in the other direction. I mean, consider a mere two to four degree drop in average temperature was all it took to plunge Earth into the Little Ice Age in the early 14th century. And that cold spell lasted hundreds of years while a 10-degree drop in average temperature, beginning about 20,000 years ago, buried most of the northern hemisphere under a thick sheet of ice.
4: Back then, very few, if any, humans were around to record the dramatic changes in the area that includes Canada and parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. But there are witnesses now... In a moment, a climate scientist will describe what changes are unfolding in the Midwest. But first, a personal account from a Michigan farmer who is also the father of our producer, Sarah Derwin. Sarah sat down with her dad on a recent visit to their family farm in Michigan's Upper Peninsula.
8: I'm Ted Derwin, I live on Meadow Lane Farm in northern Michigan in the Upper Peninsula.
2: So, full disclosure, you're my dad. <laughs>
8: <laughs> Full disclosure, you are my daughter, <laughs> and I am your dad.
2: That's right, that's <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> Dad, how how long have you lived in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan?
8: Well, I was born and raised here, and went away to school and the service and etc., and worked other places, but came back, and we've been on the farm for over 40 years.
2: Over 40 years. You know, we're talking about climate and the changes that that maybe we've seen over the past couple decades Can you maybe describe what winter was like even when you were a kid versus now?
8: Yes, winters were longer, colder, and had a lot of snow compared to now. Mm. Even when we moved here 40 years ago, there were many uh, times where we were locked in here and couldn't even get to town for two or three days because it took that long for them to clear. That is not the case
2: anymore. So less snow, less.
8: Less snow, yes.
2: You've been on the farm now for forty years. You've had your own farm.
8: Mm-hmm.
2: You have a beautiful garden every year. It's giant. I, I know because I weeded some of that.
8: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have.
2: <laughs> and so, so um, <clears throat> in your crops and and every year when you grow things, have you noticed a change over the past the past forty years?
8: Uh, yes, quite quite a bit. Um, it's become more radical in, in as much as it it's very unpredictable, which of course in the UP there's a saying that if you, <laughs> if you wait a, an hour, you know, if you don't like the weather, just wait an hour and it'll, it'll change. Mm-hmm. But still, it's way more erratic with, uh, by that, I mean it rains longer and heavier. It's hotter for longer periods than it ever used to. And I'm growing, crops that I never could grow 40 years ago
2: mm.
8: uh, the, the growing season seems to have extended quite a bit
2: yeah, well I remember I came home <clears> last <throat> summer and you had a ton of melon and I don't remember eating melon as a kid
8: no, no, back then uh, I still grew, tried to grow melons because I really love them and, and every once in a while I would say maybe 40% of the time I would get one or two melons to ripen and enjoyed them greatly, uh, but now <clears throat> it's not a hit or miss. I grow them every year, like like uh, onions or peas. <laughs> they just grow.
2: Well, Dad, thanks for for walking me down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was interesting to hear how things have changed in the Upper Peninsula. Ted Durwin
4: is a farmer in Northern Michigan, and he is the father of our producer Sarah Durwin.
3: Ecologist Jeff Dukes has a reaction to Ted Durwin's account, and as director of Purdue Climate Change Research Center, he can tell us also about what the rest of the Midwest can expect as temperatures rise.
4: Jeff, I wonder if we could just get a reaction from you to what Ted Derwin said and some of the things that he says he has seen as changes while he's lived on that farm and worked on it for 40 years.
7: Yeah, he's seeing and living climate change just as we all are. Uh, He's seeing less snow He's seeing warmer conditions in a longer growing season. He's able to grow different crops. He is living through the changes that we expect to continue and accelerate in the coming decades.
4: The list that he gave, indeed, that he's seen less snow, the temperatures are hotter, uh, the rains are longer and heavier. Of course, all of that is anecdotal. He's just telling us stories of what he's witnessed. But you're saying that his experiences line up with what the science says.
7: That's right. Yeah, his experience is anecdotal, just like all of ours are. But if you look more broadly at the measurements, the measurements that have been made over decades in many locations around that region, they back up what he's seeing. He is an accurate observer of of the conditions around there. And conditions getting wetter and the storms getting larger. That's certainly something we expect to, to see more of in the future.
4: And these are the kind of changes that we can expect with the average global temperature increasing by only a degree or two as it has.
7: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's, it's deceiving, I think, how we talk about the average global temperature changing. You can essentially take that number and double it for uh, places that are on land in the middle of continents and then you can basically double that number again as you go from the temperate latitudes where we are towards the, towards the poles. So, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about the global temperature change versus the, the temperature change that people are going to experience, typically people are experiencing much more temperature change and, and will be experiencing much more temperature change than that global number would suggest, particularly if they're in the northern regions of this country or farther to the north of us.
4: Ted made the quip about (laughs) how if you want the weather to change in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just wait a while and it will. That's familiar to anyone who's lived in the Midwest, as I have. So this would be a good time to distinguish between weather and climate. Can you give us a a quick definition?
7: Yeah, absolutely. The, The saying that I like is climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So, you know, we live in a, in a region, we expect a certain set of conditions to, to be there in, in summer, say, and we expect that based on the long-term average of what July looks like. Well, that's, that's the climate. But in reality, on any given July day, we could get a whole variety of different weather conditions. It might be storming, it might be hailing, or it might be dry and incredibly hot. And, you know, that's the day's weather.
4: You know, often how climate change affects the coastlines is what captures the headlines. Most recently, that means the exacerbated wildfires that are burning on the West Coast and the hurricanes that have been hitting the Gulf Coast region. But climate change, of course, is an equal opportunity stress. Can you give us an idea of what some of the top issues are that will affect the Midwest?
7: Yeah, well, it's already gotten a lot wetter in much of the Midwest, and we expect that to continue, particularly in the winter and spring. And so if we get more uh, water in the winter and spring, and that water often is coming in larger events and in bigger storms, that means we've got more flooding issues to deal with. So that is one of the challenges that we're facing going forward. And then another is that we expect uh, summers to well, we expect temperatures year round to warm substantially. And, you know, that's going to lead to more heat waves uh, and that sort of thing. So just a few degrees of change in the average temperature can make a big difference in the number of extremely hot days that we get and of course those are the days that have real consequences for for people's lives for people's ability to work outdoors for particularly for poorer populations um, and the elderly and the the youngest among us who can tolerate the really hot days the least
4: Here's another event that has hit our radar, as it were. In the summer of 2020, there was a severe weather event with high winds and rains called derecho, um, and it battered the Midwest. Now, this was a term that was unfamiliar to me before I heard it this summer. Iowa was hit particularly hard. Jeff, what distinguishes derecho from a normal rainstorm? We have lots of them in the Midwest. And will climate change bring about more of these events?
7: Yeah, well, derechos are these straight line winds that can, they they can basically go on for hundreds of miles. Um, and they get, uh, well, in, in the case of this most recent one, they knocked down a huge proportion of the corn crop in Iowa and ruined it. And uh, that's a relatively unusual event. You, you don't get those in a, in a normal storm. You don't get this tremendous burst of wind that's persisting for for a long period of time. And as far as I know, we don't have a very clear link of derechos to climate change. They're, they're pretty rare events. And they're certainly not unheard of, but but they're not super common. And I don't know of, of any science that's been done at this point that conclusively links their frequency or intensity to climate change. Although I think there are um, indications that there, that there could be links.
4: You mentioned the destruction to the Iowa crops, and that brings up the subject of agriculture. And I wonder if you could remind us how the country depends on the crops that are grown in the Midwest. In other words, if the Midwest starts to struggle with agriculture in any way, what are the ramifications for the rest of the country?
7: Well, yeah, I mean, we grow a lot of crops here in the Midwest, as you know, anything from corn and soybeans, which we see in great abundance, and which um, which a lot of which is used to feed our cattle, for instance, and so affects our, our meat production, and a lot of which goes into ethanol, that goes into to gasoline, but then also there's there's plenty that gets eaten to melons and mint and apples and a wide variety of other crops that get grown um, in this region.
4: Excuse me, where is mint grown? I didn't know mint was grown in the Midwest.
7: Sure. There's a, there's a pocket of uh, very rich soils in Indiana where, uh, where there's a lot of mint being grown in, in uh, northern Indiana.
4: Oh, I love mint. I love adding it to beets. Anyway, okay. That's a personal favorite for, for me. Okay, please continue.
7: Um, So it it really depends on the crop. It depends on where you're talking about. I mean, I think as you you look at the Southern reaches of the Midwest, the climate is gonna increasingly become too dry and or too hot for some uh, crop species during the growing season. So in general, I think you'll see many of the crops pushing northwards, you'll see less corn and soybeans in the southern reaches of the Midwest, and more if you, if you go up to the northern reaches of the Midwest and, and into Canada. Um, you might see some crops like cotton that are now grown in the southern, you know, basically to the south of us mainly, moving up into the Midwest a little bit more. So you know, I think in general, there's gonna be a northward push of many, many different crops. As conditions in the Midwest get wetter in the winter and spring, That's going to make it more difficult for farmers to get into the fields to plant the crops when they need to, as conditions in the summer and fall get hotter and and potentially drier as well. That's going to cause increasing water stress for the crops during the growing season.
4: Well, finally, Jeff, as you track the changes to our planet, have there been some consequences to climate change that, well, frankly, you didn't see coming?
7: Oh, I'd love to say yes. I'll have to think about it a little bit. I mean, I think though, if if you go back, Molly, if you go back to some of the early reports on climate change that were coming out 30 years ago, or even more, you will find that many of the changes that we've seen, and many of the changes that we're still projecting to happen in the future, are in those reports. So the scientists from decades ago, with some of the same ones working on it today, did a remarkably good job of projecting what the future was going to look like. So I think that in this case, the science has been doing a very good job of preparing anybody who is really wanting to listen for the climate that we're experiencing now.
4: Well, Jeff Dukes, thank you so much for talking to us
7: today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Nice to be here, Molly. Thanks. Jeff
3: Dukes is an ecologist and director of Purdue Climate Change Research Center at Purdue University. Well, Molly, uh, you know, these changes to the... Uh, weather in the Midwest, I mean, surely you can say something about that since you're a product of the Midwest.
4: Yes, there have been changes to the weather. And of course, as we're hearing, um, there may be changes to the climate. So uh, when I grew up in Wisconsin, boy, did we have cold days and long winters and lots of snow. And I've been through more than one ice storm. Now, I don't live in Wisconsin anymore, but from what I understand, they don't have the ice storms that they used to. And... Even when I lived there, I remember that the snow was coming later, that there was a December and a Christmas with no snow, which was really shocking, and that the lake where we used to go ice skating on was freezing later and later, and we had to be careful about going out onto the lake because the ice wasn't as thick as it usually was early in the season.
3: And Tom Derwin's experience in the Upper Peninsula, you know, the the, the crops he could grow, it changes. So he really sees it. He's on the ground. He sees it. The rise in temperature is affecting everything that has a pulse, and even some things that don't. As humans, we don't worry about fungal diseases, except when they go to your nails or when
5: you get after his They worry about viral diseases, they worry about parasitic diseases like malaria, they worry about tuberculosis. The question is, <laughs> what makes us so special?
4: Next, why 98.6 degrees may not be the protective thermal barrier for us much longer.
3: As we continue to ask, What's a Few Degrees, on Big Picture Science. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Not every consequence of global warming is one you see coming. Some take us by surprise. Let's go now to a medical mystery, although it's one that's close to being solved.
4: A few years ago, a new pathogen began popping up in hospitals. It wasn't a virus or a bacterium. It was a drug-resistant fungus called Candida auris. It was a yeast, and it was causing hundreds of deadly outbreaks among patients. It was first isolated in 2009. But in the past six years, its sudden appearance as a pathogen has been both alarming and mysterious because it, or members of its family, appeared at the same time in hospitals in Pakistan, India, South Africa, and England. That is, it appeared simultaneously on three different continents.
3: The London Hospital was so concerned, they closed their intensive care unit out of fear of spreading the new pathogen. But researchers at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine do not think it's really new, but rather that we're becoming reacquainted with something quite ancient. In fact, an organism that goes back to the age of the dinosaurs. Johns Hopkins
4: molecular microbiologist and immunologist Arturo Casadevall is going to tell us that story, and he begins with those dinosaurs, or rather, with their demise.
3: Yep, about 66 million years ago, an asteroid or a comet slams into the Yucatan, wiping out two-thirds of all species, including the dinos. So after the accident, you have the feeling that, okay, now the mammals are going to get their chance, but there were still reptiles. What was it that allowed the mammals to pull ahead?
5: How come we didn't go from reptilian age version one to reptilian age version two? To me, that is something that's very difficult to explain unless there is something about those little mammals that would have made them favorable to survive in the post-cataclysm environment.
3: Why don't you tell me a little bit of what it would look like if we could go back to that post-cataclysmic environment? I mean, you know, what would my neighborhood look like?
5: The day of the calamity, the Earth was a warm, forested planet. And then this thing hits, and uh, this forest comes down. The planet drops in temperature anywhere from 10 to 15 degrees overnight. All the large animals, anything large, probably cannot survive. But the other thing is, it's a dark world, cold, moist, forested down, is the great global compost.
3: So it was just a big rotting mess. That's right,
5: uh, Seth. Think about it. If you want to look for mushrooms, where do you go look for them? You go in the forest, you go to an area that is shaded, moist, and has decaying wood. You had those conditions in the post-cataclysm world. Fungi, this is the world ready-made for the fungi.
3: So you're saying that this new scenario, this new environment was great for fungi. You know, I think of fungi in general as something covering the, you know, the surface of a dead log in the forest. And you're saying, well, there was plenty for them to eat. So the fungi survived. But we're not fungi. Mammals are not fungi. How does that tie into their existence? Well, it goes like this. The fungi come in everything from a
5: mushroom to microscopic. Many of them are pathogenic. They are the main pathogens of plants. They're also pathogens of insects. But most fungi cannot tolerate higher temperatures. So you would have had massive fungal proliferation in this cold, damp planet. And organisms to survive would have been exposed to massive amounts of fungal spores. So the argument goes that not only are you helped by the fact that you have an internal furnace being a mammal, in that you can move around and look for food, but you also have a temperature that will keep the fungi out.
3: So this is just sort of an accident of evolution that these endothermic critters, that is to say things that kept their body temperatures at at a given level, unlike, I don't know, crocodiles or... Right.
5: In fact, we don't really have a very good understanding how this emerged in the first place. I mean, (laughs) what would be the conditions that led to the emergence of an organism that needs so much
3: energy? Okay, so my body temperature, 98.6, is what's normal. That's high enough to present a barrier to these fungi that otherwise would sicken me. In mammals in general, are there, is that a 98.6? Is that kind of true for all mammals? Or uh, There's a range. For example, bunnies are, are a lot
5: warmer and platypus are a lot cooler. But our temperature, the temperature that we walk around with, is sufficient to inhibit 90% of fungal species.
3: Is that a consequence of the fact that it can inhibit these fungal species, or is it just an accident? We don't know, but it's probably what you said. It's an accident. The way to think about it
5: is that being warm is probably quite ancient. The mammals were warm before the cataclysm. However, their cataclysm with this massive proliferation of fungi would have put tremendous pressure on selecting the ones that had higher temperature, because the higher the temperature, the less likely you are to get a fungal disease.
3: So there's this discrimination if you will being made on the basis of evolutionary trends that might have had nothing to do with fungi that favored warm-blooded creatures and and the reptiles who are cold-blooded lie around in the sun all day to, you know, warm themselves up. They just couldn't fight off the fungi as well. So This is a little depressing in a way, Arturo, because you're saying the fact that you and I are able to talk with one another is a consequence of the fact that my body temperature is higher than that reptile over there, or at least uh, that was the situation 65 million years ago, and we don't even yet know why that difference exists. Why didn't the cold-blooded critters you know, evolve uh, higher body temperatures. Like, could they not have done that?
5: Look, biology allows you to do anything, provided that you give enough selection. I think the problem is food. You need about 10 times more calories to get through your day than if you were reptilian. The same size, you know, just reptilian.
3: Let's come back to the present and how we started this. This pathogenic fungus, it's called Candida auris. This is not a new organism. It's been around for a while, right? Absolutely, but it's new to medicine. So it's
5: presumably been out there from time immemorial, but medicine discovers it only a few years ago. And it discovers it in association first with an ear, that's Candida auris. And then on 2011, 2012, something remarkable happens. Patients in three different continents begin to get sick with this organism. So you have the emergence of this Candida auris in South America, Africa, and the Indian subcontinent within a couple of years. And the question is, where did it come from and why now?
3: Well, why now? Let's take that on first, because we've already discussed the fact that fungi do not like elevated body temperatures. It kind of cooks them and, you know, and we're impervious to most of them. And now suddenly there's one kind of fungus that is not only harmful, but seems to be able to take a 98.6 body temperature.
5: That's right. So the key thing that we haven't talked about is that the fungi can adapt. So if you take them into the laboratory and you slowly raise the temperature, you can get them to replicate at higher temperatures. So what we have proposed, several of us, was that this organism was sitting out there in the environment. It was fully loaded with the capacity to cause disease, maybe cause disease in reptilians and insects. We don't know. And then as the temperature, the climate got warmer... Some of those adapted to higher temperatures, and then they acquire the capacity to defeat or thermal defenses.
3: So here is a species that you know preferred to live in a cooler environment. The slow change in temperature due to climate change, anthropogenic climate change, causes some of these fungi to adapt to the higher temperature, and that means that they can also infect us because we can't turn them away with our body temperature.
5: You got it. And the question that people ask me is, but wait a minute, the world is supposed to have warmed up by only one degree. How could this happen? And I think what people need to think about is not the one degree, but the number of hot days. Imagine a really hot day as a hoop that you got to jump through. The more hot days you get, the more likely that you're gonna be able to make the jump.
3: So Arturo oris, how does it attack me? What does it do? What are the symptoms?
5: So Seth, Candida auris is primarily a problem for hospitalized patients. So when it causes severe disease, it's been largely on patients who have been in the hospital for a while who are partially immunocompromised. So we are not talking about a fungus that is very powerful. So when people get it, they they got two hits. One of them is they have a weakened immune system and second our drugs don't work very well.
3: But Arturo, there are more than, I don't know, a million different species of fungi. This one we've happened to notice because it's evolved to become a problem. There are plenty more you know, behind it, right? That's right. Many of them are doing it
5: right now, presumably as we speak, but they may not have everything they need to cause disease. Look, you need to have an arsenal to take on a human immune system. Some of them have it. Some of them don't. So if it adapts and it doesn't have it, it won't necessarily be pathogenic.
3: This is an interesting story because when you think of the Kinds of enemies that Homo sapiens face generally; those are other Homo sapiens. But aside from that, in terms of the living world out there, there are only a few things that worry you: big, big carnivores, insects carrying pathogens, insects that uh, can bite you. I mean, stuff like that. And you would say, okay, just a few degrees increase in average global temperature is not going to change that constant war, but. It sounds like it does. It puts us things on the margins up into the uh, arena where they can do us damage.
5: That's right, Seth. Look, as humans, we don't worry about fungal diseases, except when they go to your nails or when you get athlete's foot. They worry about viral diseases. They worry about parasitic diseases like malaria. They worry about tuberculosis. The question is, <laughs> what makes us so special? Yeah. If you were a tree, you'd be terrified of fungi. If you were an insect, you'd be terrified of fungi. You're a frog. Oh, my God. A reptiles, they get fungal diseases. We are protected by this tremendous energy, uh, you could say, temperature shield. But it could be defeated if the fungi become adapted.
3: You know, Arturo, this is really so interesting because it's so different from the kinds of threats that I generally think about when it comes to climate change. I mean, I think of, OK, uh, the biome in the south is going to move farther north and we're going to see insects that we haven't seen before. That's already started. And we might see, you know, I don't know, bacterial infections and stuff like that. But I never thought that there would be a, an evolutionary shift that would push some dangerous species our way.
5: Right. So, so when you think about, about infectious disease threats, most of them we get from other hosts. You get it from, another, from a mosquito, you get it from a human, you get it from, a, from an animal. For example, COVID-19, the best idea is that it came from another mammal. So it was already temperature adapted. And then it kind of made the jump at some time last year. But here we're talking about the, a large number of organisms which don't usually interact with us, that are sitting in the environment. And they are learning to survive a warmer world.
3: I think that there's no chance that uh, <clears throat> Homo sapiens will evolve to have a normal body temperature of I don't know 101.6 and keep these fungi at bay.
5: Well, you could, right? I mean, you could you could put humanity on the or mammals on the selection to be hotter. But if you were to be 101, you would have to probably eat a lot more.
3: Well, finally, Arturo. I think what people often don't realize is that just a few degrees of temperature increase represents a very large increase in the amount of energy involved.
5: Exactly, Seth. And that is the reason that people often lose a lot of weight when they have a fever illness, because to raise those couple of degrees requires a tremendous amount of of energy used.
3: The all-sweat diet. Arturo Casadevall, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure.
4: Arturo Casadevall is a molecular microbiologist and immunologist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine well the big picture in the show Seth is right there in the title what is a few degrees as it turns
3: out um, a few degrees matters quite a bit it's really kind of counterintuitive because it's only a couple of degrees it doesn't sound like much but the oceans for example getting these heat blobs think of how much energy it takes to heat up water has a very high heat capacity. You put a pot on the, on the stove just to boil some water, you know, it takes a lot of energy to do that. So a couple of degrees difference in average temperature around the world. It has an enormous heat reservoir associated with it. And we're seeing all sorts of things from, you know, the attack of the fungi to the, the changes in climate in the Midwest. I mean, yeah, it sounds small, but it's not small.
4: And we didn't even discuss the melting of the sea ice or the snow cover. I mean, there are so many profound effects to just two degrees warming.
3: And, of course, the bottom line here is that if a few degrees can have such profound effects, you know, what better argument could there be to be sure that a few degrees doesn't become many more?
4: We couldn't do the show without producers who couldn't take the heat: senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and our intern Frida Crier. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
3: And thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, life in extreme environments. On the institute's senior astronomer Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
4: This episode of Big Picture Science on the consequences of slight changes in global temperatures is What's a Few Degrees?
2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.